Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Everyone, today I am joined by Stratus Morfogan. He's the founder of Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, which is an awesome story to tell. It's been getting a lot of buzz online, uh, as well as in press outlets, and I'm honored to have him on today. Uh, Stratus, why don't you say hello and give a little bit of backstory? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I, um, I, I'm a third-generation restaurateur. Uh, my grandfather was probably the first Greek restaurant in New York in 1910. Um, so third generation, growing up in that traditional Greek family of diners, restaurants, catering halls. At 20 years old, um, make a very long story shorter, which is difficult. Uh, <laughs> I left my family business when I was 20. And um, I opened some well-known restaurants in my 33-year career, like Gotham Diner, Chiano, Philippe Chow, um, um, currently Brooklyn Chop House. I also had a few nightclubs before my kids were born. Uh, after my kids were born, I got out of that business pretty quickly. So you could say hospitality is in part of you know ingrained in my soul. You know, I live, breathe, eat, and sleep it. And um, and basically, the last fifteen years, people know me for Philippe Chow and Brooklyn Chop House mm-hmm. is where I've I've fell in love with Chinese food. And um, but I felt like we could bring that old traditional Greek hospitality to the restaurants that I enjoyed most. And that's when I created Philippe. Uh, Philippe Chow was the chef of Mr. Chow. Wasn't really crazy about the guest experience. Uh, I took the chef away from there. I gave him the American dream. I thankfully lived up to everything I promised. Gave him a really good life. He deserved it. And then we parted ways in 2014. I took a few years off with my non-compete. And then uh, between Robert Cummings and Dave Thomas and I, who were customers of Philippe, uh, I always wanted to create a, a type of chop house. And my mm-hmm. chop house was chopsticks, chop steak, or dim sum and chops. Because every time I went to a great steakhouse, I'd be there like a slob eating a porterhouse by myself. But my wife would be eating, because she doesn't eat beef, she'd be eating cream of spinach, baked potato, and fish with a piece of parsley. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, I'm really enjoying myself, but I could see whatever she's eating, we could do better at home. So that's when I came up with the idea of LSD. Um, and I don't mean the drug, I mean salt and pepper, salt and pepper, ginger, garlic, lobster, married with a three pound dry age, Pat Lafrida porterhouse steak, married with a seven pound authentic, never fried, roasted Peking duck. So mm. lobster, steak, and duck to me was the ultimate surf and turf. And that's what, that was the genesis of creating Brooklyn Chop House is marrying a Chinese cuisine with an American steakhouse. So the co-stars, like the lobster, the fish, and the appetizers, are just as good as the star, the star being the porterhouse steak or the dry-aged meats. And we achieved that with very high success. Um, We're breaking every record per sales per square foot, topping $3,000 a foot. 
And what happened at that point, when it came down to the appetizers, as we were drawing the menu up, I said, I don't want to do a burger. I want to do a bacon cheeseburger dumpling. They're mm-hmm. like, what? I don't want to do French onion soup or lobster bisque. I want to do lobster bisque or French onion soup dumpling. And that was just like, you know, really? I, you know, that, that, that was, I, I give a lot of credit to my partners and my chef because the big concern is we're going to confuse people. And I said, no, people are going to get it quick because we're creating our own lane. No one's ever brought these items along with an American steakhouse. Uh, the palm was Italian. They, they, they basically mixed and mashed Italian with a steakhouse. So all we're doing is mix and mashing Beijing cooking with a steakhouse. And the results don't lie. It was a phenomenal success. And uh, the dumplings really took us over the top. We have pastrami dumpling, the bacon cheeseburger dumpling, the lamb gyro dumpling, the Philly cheesesteak dumpling, the impossible vegan plant-based dumpling, uh, on and on and on and on. The Reuben dumpling, instead of uh, sauerkraut with the Swiss cheese and corned beef, we added bok choy. So that became a huge success. And then the natural progression of that was, let's think about doing a one and a half ounce sandwich shop. See, I love to start my partner meetings like that. And they're like, what? A one and a half ounce sandwich. Everybody's going big. And why the hell do we want to do a sandwich shop? I said, no, a one and a half ounce sandwich to me is a dumpling. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's carbohydrates surrounded by protein, fish, or veggies. It's very simple. It's a small sandwich. And if pigs in the blanket became an industry staple 50, 60 years ago, well, you know what? Why can't we re- reimagine two subcategories? Why can't we reimagine the dumpling? Why can't we reimagine the sandwich? and put them together and start our own lane. Mm-hmm. And with that said, we started writing uh, Brooklyn Dumpling Shop in 2019. But when I started doing research about why so many fast food restaurants fail, I wanted to understand how we can do better. And I started researching Horn and Harder, uh, the automat, which they created in 1895. And I said, okay, Interesting enough that the automat was a monster in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. In the 70s, it died out because technology failed the automat in the 70s. There weren't dollar bill receivers. There weren't credit card processors. You had to wait online to get $10 a quarters and then wait online to put the quarters in the machine to feed a family of four. You know, you know, back in 1970s, you needed 40 quarters. Mm-hmm, you know, inflation mm-hmm. had went up very much in the 70s. So then people had a choice to go to McDonald's, KFC, or, or, or Pizza Hut. They felt, you know, so the automats fell out of favor very quickly. Hence, Burger King bought the last 12 leases of Horn and Harder. And uh, that was the fall of the automat. And then the automat, to me, was like, wow, I think that's the most cost-effective, efficient way to distribute a product. Now, with, if, we, if we're doing driverless cars, it's time to bring back the automat and allow the consumer to control it with their smartphone. And that's all we did. I did it with my partners at Panasonic. I gave them the vision of what I wanted, what the guest experience was. By no means am I an engineer or coder or about very, you know, I know basic tech. Uh, but I, my vision was allow them to control it by their phone. Allow them to open the automat with their phone by waving their phone with a barcode that will text message or email to the guest. Allow the full experience to be controlled from the consumer's phone. Allow them to come in and out of the restaurant within 30 seconds, not the traditional four to six minutes that fast food allows you to for a successful operation. We could get you out in 30 seconds 
if you use our tech. Now, if you come to the store, like behind me, you'll see 20, 30 people right now putting orders in and they'll wait up to six to eight minutes because we don't, we don't prep anything. Everything's cooked to order. You know, we don't have like a slide like a lot of the fast food places have with the product sitting there for 15, 20 minutes. We make everything to order. But with, you know, leaning on tech, we can allow the integrity of the product to remain. But telling the consumer, hey, you know, 30 minutes before, go online and put the order in on our website. And we'll still be able to cook to order and have it waiting in the automat in a 150 degree or a 35 degree locker for cold items waiting for you, cooked to order, and you're in and out in 30 seconds. That was the whole model. This was before COVID. This basically was uh, December 2019. I didn't do it for safety reasons. I just did it for efficiencies, economic, and, 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 and turning the tables and allowing the consumer to be in full control. Sorry, that's, that's for the, the, answer. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's the only way I can set the tone and set the stage here. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, it, it's it's actually answered some of my initial questions, but it gives me enough to dig into. Um, so uh, what's interesting about innovation um, is when you look back, it's a, it seems very well done. It seems very obvious. Like, of course, this would be a good idea. Why didn't we do it sooner? But when you're uh, ahead of the curve, when you're actually innovating – uh, innovation by its very nature is extremely uncomfortable. It, it's uh, it's risky, and and obviously, I mean, you're you're at the helm, but you have to get other people on board. How did you begin to make that case? Besides having a wonderful personality and uh, some fervor behind it, did you find any bumps in the road to get people on board? There's an old there's an old saying: if you watch any 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 documentary about innovation, from you know from Ray Kroc to the McDonald Brothers to you know. The, you know, the guys from Atari when they were creating general general dynamics. And, you know, um, the first one through the wall gets a bloody nose. You know? <laughs> That's and, right. and it's funny, when my book came out last uh, last December, uh, Damn Good Dumplings, I had, you know, critical acclaim from the best chefs in the world. Danielle Ballou, Eric Reaper, Rachel Ray, uh, Rocco Despirito, uh, Todd English, on and on and on, gave me incredible reviews on my book after they read it. And the, the one thing that they all said to me after they read the book is, do you mean to tell me someone never made a pastrami dumpling? I said, no. You know, and it came easy to me because remember, like I said in the beginning, I come from like a Greek diner background mm-hmm. and I've owned Chinese restaurants for 15 years. So hence, that's how you get a pastrami or a Reuben dumpling. It's basically to me, you know, when I grew up in the diner business, I would see a pastrami sandwich that big. Mm-hmm. I look at it. I had no interest in biting it, you know, but then I would see a burger and I would, you know, maul it. You know, I would eat it in two seconds because it wasn't intimidating to me as, you know, a teenager or a youngster. Mm-hmm. And, and interesting enough, I have three daughters and I've introduced all new foods to them from fish to vegetables through a dumpling format. I'd actually make the dumplings at home. And I would put fish in it. I would pan fry it a little bit with soybean oil, make it a little crispy. And all of a sudden, the kids are eating fish. You know, so I always thought the dumpling was just so fascinating to me on how it needed to, to reemerge and be reimagined. Because it's yeah. just the same thing over and over and over. Which I love those dumpling shops, but how much pork, veggie, and crab can you eat? Right. Well, I think what's brilliant about the dumpling is it's not – I mean – 
your approach to it is obviously uh, Asian, like you've said, but uh, dumplings are found across cultures and throughout Europe. You know, raviolis, of, of course, are a dumpling. Pierogies. Pierogies. Yeah, I, I've been known in my circle of friends to make a really good pierogi. Uh, my grandmother is Slovak. And I, I took the original recipe, which is um, cobalt cheese or Kobe cheese in uh oh. You know, and, and potatoes mashed up, but I've extended it now. Of course, I have no intentions of opening a restaurant, so <laughs> it, yeah. it stays with my circle of friends. But it is a brilliant mechanism for delivering different kinds of flavors. Um, so I'm going to ask you to speak on behalf of all Greeks in the entire world. Why is the diner format so palatable to uh, Greek immigrants coming to the U.S.? Because you know, we never looked at the clock, and yeah. you know, um, you know. That generation, like my dad used to say, I go, Dad, why we have the diner open 24 hours? You know, and he'd go, well, I'm open 14 days a week, not seven. And 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 basically that was their approach because one thing that they were not afraid of, their generation, is hard work. Like my dad had no problem putting in 18 hours. He would say 12 hours a half day. You know, and that was the mentality they came from. And not everybody can run a 24-hour operation especially something that's very labor intensive. And, um, and, th- and that's the, that's the culture I was brought into by my family. My mom would be at the register. My dad would be counting lemons in the basement to make sure there's 90 lemons in a box. You know, it was, that was the way they grew up and they were very cost, uh, conscientious of every freaking lemon and every penny you could imagine because like my dad would always say, I can tell you how you're running your restaurant by turning your garbage upside down, mm-hmm, seeing mm-hmm. what's in your garbage. And I'll tell you how you're running your restaurant, seeing where the waste is, seeing how inefficient your operation is. I mean, that was how I was brought up. And you know what? I, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world because that's how this group of immigrants created a whole lane where um, Cheesecake Factory tried to rip it off. And look where they are today. They're bankrupt. Right. You know, Cheesecake yeah. basically stole the, the New York diner. And right. They could do better. And now they're bankrupt. And the diners continue to roll on. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, my first job uh, after being a paper boy uh, was working at, at a Greek diner. And um, I don't think this what is something city? you... What city were you in? A small town called York, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, so central PA. Um I learned a lot while working there. And when you say efficient, I can't explain to you how, how much I completely understand what you're saying. So uh, my little anecdote is I remember at, when I was busing, I would have to bring back all the ramekins of unused butter to the back kitchen where they would scoop it out, melt it down and reuse it. <laughs> and now I use it for the lobster. Exactly. Exactly. So it's uh Probably not the best thing to do, and I'm sure, yeah, pro- yeah. you know, uh, yeah, modern you get away with that today. <laughs> no, not today, but back then it was very funny. Yeah. Um, so you go from from that upbringing, which instills this work ethic and this idea of um, being unafraid to merge cuisine, because I think that's one thing that Greek diners, it's no holds barred. Um, and Greek chefs are chefs that are in the kitchen. I mean, they're the last the last generation, if we want to call it that, of short order cooks. I mean, those folks can make a scrambled egg and then yeah, in the next make a second, salad, make a sandwich salad. and cook a steak and cook a steak and, and put together a lobster dinner. These kinds of things is crazy. Yeah. So you, you take this and um, eventually you get to this uh, sort of 
I hate to use the word fusion. It's kind of an F word these days, but a fusing of this traditional steakhouse with Asian influence. And then that leads you to basically pulling dumplings into its own category. Um, I, I guess my question is, what did you, you kind of talked about what you saw in the automat, but, um, where did you, where did you innovate? What was the automat yesterday to what it became today? Because for those that don't know, automats were usually coin operated. Um, and as, as I recall them being, you would walk in and it'd be a wall of cubby holes that already had food in them. Great. You know, great, that, that's, this is a great question. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, that's this is a good. question that I'm always trying Whatever interview I'm doing, I'm trying to push that question out of the person I'm speaking with because um, that's the key. Everyone that tried to bring back the automat, many failed. Two factors were is they would go wall-to-wall automat, and you wouldn't see what's going on behind it. And the consumer is not comfortable with that, especially today. They are not comfortable walking into a wall of metal and not seeing what's behind it. And then the second factor is, like you said, is that they think it's like a candy machine where, you know, go to Locker 7 for pastrami dumplings or go to Locker 3 for a bacon cheeseburger dumpling. It's not how it is. Ours is our products are still cooked to order, like we said at the beginning. And then all the all the automat is to me is half the store automat, half the store glass kitchen with a dumpling machine being made in front of you. So it becomes like a dumpling bakery. Mm-hmm. And that's very personal. And then the automat is very impersonal. So when you marry those together, it actually works. When there's been a couple of reincarnations of the automat in the last 20 years, they didn't do well because the whole wall became a metal box. And that doesn't work. You need to have half metal box, half kitchen, glass. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, it will not work because people have that pre-notion that, oh, I'm going to an automat, I'm basically buying food like a candy bar. And that's mm-hmm. not how it's run. It's basically the automat is basically uh, substituting cashiers and logistical personnel. That's what it does. It makes it less hands, more efficient, smaller footprint for execution for back of the house, where the cook to the prep, I'm sorry, from the cook to the uh, packager to the expo is all three steps. And that's how we get the product out in a very cost-effective manner and very that's, little human error. That's great. Cause so you, you get the theater, which, um, I mean, who doesn't love watching food be made? It's, it just taps our curiosity uh, so much as humans, but then it's also proof positive of the freshness of the product. Correct. So we, we worked, um, we did a bit of work, uh, vigor, um, years ago for a dim sum quote unquote dim sum restaurant that was not really dim sum. It was just the the dumplings and they had a machine, but the way that they told their story uh, against our judgment and against our advice was that these were house made. And when you say that you're thinking people in the back actually hand making these dumplings when in fact they had a machine at a factory that was making them for them. And of course their, their cover got blown the BS meters went off and that place eventually went under. Combine that with when well, well, people. Well, well, you know what? Not to interrupt you, they, yeah. they should have actually owned that because that's exactly so. So let me tell you what's going on with us because what, what you just said has a lot of val- val- validity to it is that we have one store right now that's a company store, but we were the first restaurant in the history of hospitality that has sold 140 franchises prior to opening store one. And now let me tell you how this is going to work. 
So I am not I am not allowed to use my dumpling machines and sell interstate. That's illegal from the mm. FDA. So what we're doing is we teamed up with two co-packers, plus we have a Walmart account. So the Walmart, we can't do 50 million dumplings. But our co-packer with 400,000 feet, FDA approved, HACCP approved, can do it for us. But mm. we have complete creative and culinary control. We actually do the recipes. We actually do every aspect of that dumpling before it goes into production. So I don't know why they wouldn't own that because I'll own that, but not to the same degree, but I'll own that this is for me to service 140 franchises. I have to have a co-packer, 400,000 square feet, me, Chef Jack, Paul, and Peter, my director of ops, culinary director, and chef are in control of every aspect of every ingredient. And then once we give the green light, it goes into big production. Remember, a dumpling cannot be steamed fresh. It has to be blast frozen and it, with the, without crystallization. Before it gets into a steamer, it has to be frozen. Mm -hmm. So what's great about that is that we're not lowering the integrity of the product for scalability. So I'm surprised they didn't own it. And just I would have tweaked it a little bit, but they should have owned it that, yeah, we got a co-packer. We're in control of our products. We're, we're developing these products with R&D. And then these products are going to be shipped to Cisco. And then Cisco is going to distribute to all our co-packers, hmm. I mean, all our uh, uh, franchisees. Yep. And that's the model. And if anyone says, oh, wow, they're using third-party dumplings. No. Yes, it's a third-party co-packer. But I legally can't sell my products to you the same way a McDonald's wouldn't be able to make burgers in one of the McDonald's shops and ship it out throughout the states of America when mm -hmm. they were starting out. It's illegal. You can't go interstate without being USDA qualified with a HACCP approved facility. And the minimum, those are like 20,000 square feet. Right. So we have to go to a co-packer. We have full control. But for us to service 140 stores in the next 30 months, um, we can't do it out of our dumpling lab right here behind me. So I'm surprised they didn't own it because they were on the right path, but I, I don't think they explained it well. Yeah. And that, that's what we were getting at is, you know, why hide it? Because when you hide things, someone's going to find out, someone's going to leak it. Then you look like a liar, you know, and, and the BS meter goes off. Entry level staffers. I mean, look what's going on with Subway and Taco right. Bell. I mean, these kids all have a phone and they take a picture and they say, look what Subway's serving for tuna. Look what Subway's yep. serving for chicken. Look what Subway's serving for bread. They're stupid on it. Right. There's nothing. Yeah, absolutely. In, on in it. my field, there's nothing wrong with it. I'll tell you why. Because um, dumplings have to be flash frozen before they're steamed. So we're mm -hmm. not changing it. To, we're not trying to look like, oh, the product comes fresh. It is fresh. But once we chop it up and once we put it into a dumpling, we blast freeze it. Because if mm -hmm. it's not frozen, it will not stay in a steamer. And every product that we do, even though it finds itself in the fryer or the flat griddle, has to be three minutes in the steamer so the dough can cook. Mm -hmm. and if that dough goes in without being frozen, it falls apart. So yeah, and what's so what's, what's it's great a little about easier this for is... me to own than like a Taco Bell or or a Subway. 
Right. And, and my, my thing that we would say is like, one, people are going to find out too. If you don't have anything to hide, why hide it? And three, it gives you an opportunity to tell that story. And when people know things, they like to tell other people the things that they know. And so knowledge is very powerful in this regard. I, I, I would, li- I would like your viewers. I'm going to tell you something that's probably going to be in the business books one day. Go to my Yelp account at Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, right? The last guy who just did it was named Matt, right? So Matt, listen to this. So Matt walks past Brooklyn Dumpling Shop about a week ago. And you got to remember, I'm getting samples from all the co-packers. So co-packers are sending me samples of their existing product so I can taste it. Mm -hmm. And three things happen. One is we don't like the, the craftsmanship. We throw it out. Two is we love the craftsmanship. Um... And we, we love the, um, the product. Hey, two of them we actually put on the menu because these are our co-packers. They're making it by hand, which we want all of them making it by hand. And the third is, um, you know, we like their craftsmanship. We don't like the product, but we're going to do business with them because we like their work. But once they, they get teamed up with our chefs, we can work with them. Mm-hmm. So the guy walks by and sees four boxes of dumplings with pork pot stickers on it from a third party. He takes a picture and he goes, look at this. This company is a fraud. They buy their dumplings that you could just buy from Amazon and they're selling it as fresh, like made here at the store. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, this guy, I I respect his perspective, but he's full of shit. Sorry, Mm -hmm. I had to say that. Explosive, you got to put it up. So (laughs) I, I turned around and I said, so I said, you know, Matt, Maybe there's an answer to this before you go shooting your mouth off, because I answer Yelpers very unorthodox. Uh, I even told a group that a party of six at Brooklyn Chop House that came an hour late, and she said, if we don't get sat, we're going to Yelp you. Next day, I got four one-star reviews. I actually said, let's take a step back. I want to buy you guys dinner and make up for this. And they're like, wow, you were such, a, you were such an ass the night before. I said, no, let's start over again. Um, I made a reservation in Times Square at Red Lobster. I'm paying for it. Go there because I never want you to come back to my restaurant again because that's, that's where you belong, not in a fine dining establishment. That thing went like 2 million pictures viral, my mm-hmm. response. People to this day come in and want to meet me. But getting back to this guy, Matt. So Matt calls me a fraud. Brooklyn Dumpling Shop is a fraud. Look at this picture. I got the picture. I got the proof. Yeah. I responded. I said, Matt, do, we don't even have a pork pot sticker on our menu. These are samples sent to us from co-packers because for us to grow to 140 franchises, we need to um, marry it with a co-packer under our tutelage, under our culinary direction, or that's the only way we can service um, 140 stores in the next 30 months. So it's like, bullshit, bullshit, you're a fraud. So I Mm -hmm. said, how about this? Because I think you're just a hater. Why don't you come to the restaurant and let's do a walkthrough of every inch of this restaurant? And you tell me if I'm right or you're right. Why don't you accept the challenge? Well, finally, he came in yesterday. Oh, I love it. And I said, you know what? I give you a lot of respect for showing up because this became heated. I I said, you're a hater. You're full of shit. You're this, this, blah, 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 blah. And um, we did a walkthrough of the whole restaurant. And actually, he took a picture of me in the freezer. It was surrounded by like 10,000 dumplings. And then um, he just posted it back on Yelp with a five-star review and said, boy, oh, boy. I was wrong. You know what? This guy is amazing. This guy basically is so passionate about his product. He proved me wrong. When I thought I had him, 
with the photograph. And mm-hmm. all these guys are doing is buying dumplings from third-party uh, companies and, and coming off like they're a dumpling bakery. And, you know, you know I, I feel, he's like, I feel terrible. I called them a fraud because I just did a whole walkthrough in and out of that restaurant from the freezer to the back of the house to all the reaching boxes. And the only, only things I saw from a third party said, sample only, do not use. Yep. And, and, and he redid his review on Yelp. And now everybody's reacting to it because we were at each other's throats. Right. And you're not supposed to do technically in the old world. But I believe in Yelp, you can't let these th- If you're wrong, apologize. Say you'll do better, DM them, throw the house at them to try to make them happy. But we have a, we have a few groups of haters. One other group of haters is we're, we're, we're taking jobs because we're using the automatic. Mm-hmm. Now, I say we're saving jobs. Like, what, what are you smoking? What do you mean you're saving up? You admitted in this article, in this article, in this article, instead of 11 employees, you have five employees. How are you saving jobs? I said, I'm saving a lot of jobs. And he's like, explain, explain, liar. I swear to God, this is what people have yeah. approached me on like Facebook, Instagram. I believe you, yeah. TikTok, even worse. TikTok is like the necessary evil, but man, they're tough. And let me tell you something. I said, very simple. Seven out of 10 restaurants fail within three years. That's documented study. Mm-hmm. Seven out of 10. The number one reason is uh, excessive payroll. Now, I didn't even factor what's happening today. Can't even find payroll. But I didn't do that for that reason. We don't have that data yet. But boy, that's coming too. Absolutely. To actually really promote the automat. That You know what? You're having a problem finding staff? Do the automat. You cut your staff in, in half. Mm-hmm. Getting back to my answer pre-COVID was we may have a smaller footprint, smaller labor force, smaller infrastructure, um, smaller overhead, but we will save, instead of seven out of 10 restaurants failing for the number one reason of excessive payroll, why don't we flip it around where maybe if we could get payroll from 30% industry norm to 15%, Mm -hmm. maybe those seven restaurants don't have to close. Hence, saving jobs and not just the jobs of the actual restaurant what about the meat packer the vegetable guy what about the shoe shining guy what about the dry cleaner what about the delivery guy who brings the food it trickles down to many many other fields many many other industries so if we can get the industry norm payroll from 30 percent down to 15 percent we will save jobs Absolutely. And that, and that actually taps into something that people haven't really um, connected the dots yet. And we could, gosh, we could probably have an entire podcast unpacking the idiocy of people who take one data point and one moment, Correct. jump to a radical conclusion, and then steadfastly stick to it uh, to the death. Uh, I am... To Mr. Matt, if you're listening to this, kudos to you for having the humility, for one, having the balls to follow up and accept uh, a, a, an invite slash challenge. And then two, having the humility to swallow the pride and said, you know what? I got it wrong. I, I can't high five that guy enough because we need more of that in the world. And you want to hear something crazy? He's a big venture capitalist and wants to be involved in the next round of our funding. I love it. How about that? So, I mean, and, and I mean, there's so much to unpack here too. We also have a large group of people of um, not just public relations actual professionals, but those who have a PR uh, slant or need to deal, like relate to the public, who have a whole different take on how to handle Yelp. And so to hear your honesty to this and just the guts to be able to say, like, 
I don't care that this is your opinion. You're wrong. And let me show you how, or bugger off. We don't want you here. Cause I think there are more people that respect that kind of honesty and this approach. Cause most people know that Yelpers are 50, 50, you know, half the time they're full of shit. Yeah. Um, well, you gotta remember, it's funny, like for Brooklyn Dumpling Shop and Brooklyn Chop House, we have about three to 4,000 people a week visiting our store. Mm-hmm. We get only about 10 Yelps a week. So out of the 10 Yelps, we usually get one or two haters mm-hmm. and eight people giving us five stars. So if you think about it, if you look at that data, people that usually are, are, are haters or angry or have some kind of, you know, uh, uh, some kind of agenda, yeah. they go to Yelp because that's where the angry go. That's right. What happened to the 2,900 people uh, that, that, that loved Brooklyn Chop House or Dumpling Shop? How come they're not writing anything? Because they usually don't. You know, there's not that many that want to go back on and review a site. They walked out and they're super happy and they leave it like that. So, yep. so it's interesting where people just like, now my new group of haters is because we just did a deal with Miso Robotics. We're going to go from five people in the kitchen or three people in the kitchen down to two using robotics on the fryer and the griddle. You know what? Again, I'll use the same argument. We're saving jobs. Maybe now I can get the payroll to 10%. You're looking at a little snapshot of one store and saying, look, you went from 11 employees to four employees. You're stealing jobs. And if you go to Miso Robotics Instagram, I did like an answer this long because every one of the comments is, I hate this. You're stealing jobs. You're stealing jobs. You're stealing jobs. No. You're actually creating jobs and saving jobs by embracing technology if you look at the big picture. Because I want seven out of ten restaurants to thrive. I don't want them to fail. And that's what's happening in our industry. And it's going to get worse with politicians extending unemployment. It's going to get worse. I was okay with everybody doing unemployment. But now that the economy is open, shut it down. Well, and it's more, it's really important to think like that too, because one of the reasons why uh, people are not coming back, and this is anecdotal through us for, through another party, it was a friend of mine. Um, it's not because fully because the government is paying them so much money. That is definitely part of it. And anyone with half a brain knows that, but the other one, and maybe a bigger one is the income is dependable. And so when you have uh, states shutting things down, if I come back to work, how do I know my job's going to be there tomorrow? So when you have longevity with a successful concept, people are interested in working there because they know their job's going to be there next week, next month, next year, and they can grow. I mean, think about the opportunities to start in the kitchen and then work your way into robotics. Cause there has to be a path that like at least sees that, like you started interacting with the robots, you get a, you you start to like this. Uh, uh, That's amazing. It's all controlled by AI technology. Yeah, what Miso Robotics is doing is incredible, and yeah, you know, instead of having five or three or two people at the kitchen, it will drop your staff in half. Yeah, efficient. What's another killer of restaurants? Uh, consistency. Yeah, you know, you're not going to have that problem anymore. Cleanliness. Everything, everything is. There's no human error. Yep. Consistency is another killer. You go one day, you try, you have an experience A. You go next time, you have experience B. You know what? I don't care if A or B is better or worse. It's different. And mm-hmm. that's going to kill your brand, especially when you go into global markets. I don't care where I am. I could go to Mexico, to Italy, to Greece, to Lisbon, Portugal, to anywhere in the tri-state area and have the same double quarter pounder at McDonald's. Right. I will have the same French fry because they, they're consistent. And that's what makes yeah. that chain thrive. And you know what? With AI technology, robotics, and automat, 
why if we could get payroll from 30% down to 10 to 15%, the chances of us failing is, is minute. Because Absolutely. The, the, Exponentially that, lower. And, and, and let's just say, you, you know, we misstep and we get a location that's not working. And you know what? We're losing 15% a, a, a quarter because we're not making, you know, we're not making money. We're basically borderline failing at a particular location. Every one of us as entrepreneurs have that. Every one of us and every franchise in the world will have that. The idea is you don't want it to be more than 10% of your stores, but every, every franchise has that. Right. Wouldn't it be great at all the ones that are failing that are 30, even as high as 40% payroll? Because when you're failing, sometimes your payroll even goes to 40%. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be great to shave 15 points off that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the difference between staying, staying open and, and honestly just a, a slow or quick burn. And what um, happens when you close? You right. Yeah. Job. Everyone loses their jobs and they're sure. looking for something else. It, it would be, I mean, the long-term effects here of, of um, reducing or maybe it's better to say optimizing the the labor is that restaurants stay open longer and and everyone thrives as a result because when a bunch of restaurants fail everyone that services those restaurants fail i mean we had a hell of a time getting through the pandemic cuz all we work with is restaurants and we were there we we cut prices for some clients we we did our best to stay there to keep the the the, the train on the tracks um, and so people just don't quite understand once again they find that one little moment they latch onto it and they don't look at any other factors and that that's a real shame um, so i have one final question then we'll, we'll land this plane cuz I, I know you got a <laughs> a shop to run um, the name Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, I found interesting. And my, my question for you is, what are your thoughts on the longevity or the viability of that name as you grow across the nation? And for a little bit of perspective there, you know, we had St. Louis Bread Company. And as they extended outside of St. Louis, they ended up rebranding to Panera. Yeah. And, and there are uh, others to this. It's a very good question. And uh, Brooklyn has probably the largest brand cachet in every city in the world. Right now, if you ask the owner of Brooklyn Lager, I think there's a YouTube video out there. He'll say, if if, I forgot his first name, but let's just say it's Joe. Mm -hmm. He would say, if it was called Joe's Lager, it'd be worth one tenth of what my company's worth today. Sole reason is when you're sitting in a pub in Ireland or a bar in Hamburg and you Mm -hmm. see the word Brooklyn up and down the spout, you're inclined to give it a shot. They they don't, you know, on that spout, it doesn't have every accolade that I've won. But right. the word Brooklyn has a lot of brand equity and a lot of brand cachet. Um, for us, the reason why we called it Brooklyn Chop House was we, were, we are under the Brooklyn Bridge, but we're on the Manhattan side. Mm-hmm. And what we did was we wanted to do a tribute to the first culinary wave of America with the Irish immigrants. And in the 1850s, they opened up chop houses featuring mutton chops, mm-hmm. you know, chop, lamb chop, veal chop, whatever it was. And they all opened in Brooklyn. And the last chop house to survive is Peter Luger. Um, And that was really the Irish immigrants of the 1850s. That was really the first culinary wave besides pizza, because there was some in Little Italy that were doing pizza, not on a big scale. But um, chop houses were introduced in Brooklyn. So when we're under the Brooklyn Bridge and we're thinking about the name of our new chop house, I knew it was going to be chop house because my dad owned six Chelsea chop houses originated in in Chelsea, New York. Mm-hmm. And he branched out to every part of New York, New York outside of the suburban areas with the word Chelsea, and he did very well. KFC started in Utah. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, uh, what we're experiencing now that we have a massive Walmart contract, uh, we'll be in about 1,800 Walmarts in September, October. 
uh, they, they're so thrilled with the name. And the packaging is like black with like the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, it's the opposite of what you see on a shelf with right. all your little pastel colors. We're not doing any of that. Um, so we believe actually the opposite. Mm. The word, I, I'm sitting right now with a meeting. Uh, they own all the subways in Europe. And they love the word Brooklyn. They love Harley Davidson. Um, and, and, and they basically said, we are so excited to bring Brooklyn Dumpling Shop to Hamburg. That's great. Germany, because Brooklyn really resonates across the globe. It's the hippest. It's much bigger than Manhattan. The three biggest words in, 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 in New York is to brand a product. Soho, Harlem, and Brooklyn is number one. So a lot of people, as you can see, are putting Brooklyn in their names because Brooklyn is instant brand marketing. And, yeah, uh, so, so sorry, Staten Island. You, you didn't make the cut. <laughs> no, it's, it's, not, it's just not. Brooklyn is, Brooklyn is a very hip brand yeah. and uh, and we prove it with our merchandising we do hoodies and shirts and hats and blah 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 it's amazing everybody does it on our mail order at brooklynchophouse.com or brooklyn dumpling shop and they're buying our merchandise just because the word brooklyn is there and uh, and that's really cool so brooklyn to us is you know i don't know if you heard recently we did the largest covid deal in Times square we're opening a brooklyn chop house twenty five thousand square feet uh with the opening of broadway in september and we have a whole area just for merchandise, you know, Brooklyn is a very marketable term. And, uh, and we hear it now from like the head buyers at Walmart to all our franchisees, the guys I just bought Minnesota, they own Jimmy John subway shops in Minnesota. They're doing 30 Brooklyn dumpling shops. And they're like, you have no idea how excited we are to bring Brooklyn to Minnesota or bring Brooklyn to Houston, Texas, or bring, Bro and then when you start selling a pastrami dumpling, and, you know, and you start adding like the Rubin and like New York signatures, it right. all comes together pretty nicely where, wow, I'm getting a taste of New York, Brooklyn with a pastrami dumpling. That's so awesome. It works really well with us. There, there's a lot to be excited about. So final question, and, and then we'll get, we'll tie this up. Um, the last dumpling you can eat before you die, what, what flavor is it? Well, I'm going to go with Gail King. Gail King said before she gets to the electric chair, her last dumpling will be the bacon cheeseburger dumpling at Brooklyn Chop House and Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. So I'm going to stick with Gail King. The last love it. on earth is going to be the bacon cheeseburger because she already wrote that in O Magazine as my, my last meal on earth will be the bacon cheeseburger dumpling at Brooklyn Chop House and Dumpling Shop. Hell of an accolade. That's awesome. Well, hey, look, thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you shared. There's so much to learn from this. Um, I look forward to seeing how this brand explodes in the right way um, over the next years. And uh, you definitely have a gem here. Uh, thanks for your Thank time. You. Thanks for having me. Awesome. If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.